Please, don't be alarmed. We're not going to harm anyone. We're mutants. We're not what you think. Across the planet, debate rages. Are mutants the next link in the evolutionary chain? They have been regarded with fear, suspicion, often hatred. There are forces in this world who believe that a war is coming. We're here to stay. The next move is yours. We'll be watching. Hang on to something. Welcome to Now Playing's X-Men Retrospective Series. Welcome to Mutant High. Part of the Now Playing Marvel Comic Movie Series. You talk pretty tough for a guy in a cape. Hosted by Jacob. A very powerful mutant who believes that a war is brewing between mutants and the rest of humanity. Stuart. You know people like you are the reason I was afraid to go to school as a child. <laughs> and Arnie. Toad has a wicked tongue just like you. Join us at NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for a new installment of the series. Who will you stand with? The humans or us? Culminating in a weekend of release review of the newest X-Men film, X-Men First Class. They will never, ever forget it. These podcasts contain detailed plot spoilers and mild language. Listener discretion is advised. Let's do this. Today we're discussing X-Men, starring Patrick Stewart, Hugh Jackman, Ian McKellen, Halle Berry, Famke Jensen, James Marsden, Bruce Davidson, Rebecca Romaine Stamos, Ray Park, and Anna Paquin, directed by Brian Singer. I'm Arnie. Prove it. You're a dick. Good enough for me. This is Jacob. Stuart in LA. And here we are in our second episode discussing the first X-Men movie. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what that bad dream was that we had the last <laughs> time, but I'm glad it's all gone. And this came out in the year 2000. I know we're the state of the X-Men in 2000 from the comics, but Arnie, you're the multimedia guy. What about the movies? Because I'm thinking this was before Spider-Man. Was this the first big, real blockbuster, adult, serious comic book movie where you'd gotten rid of the travesty that the Batman films had become? And this was this real big reboot for the superhero genre in general. Kind of. I mean, I felt like during the 90s, because of the original Tim Burton Batman, superheroes had kind of a resurgence. It seems like they go on almost a weird, like, seven-year cycle where we started with Superman and had him in the early 80s, but by the time there was Quest for Peace, we were kind of in the doldrums, and then Batman came back and really kind of pushed things ahead, and for Marvel, they tried to keep up with Batman. We got the Punisher and Captain America, and then there was Dick Tracy and Mutant Ninja Turtles and all that, and... Then it, you know, it keeps getting worse and worse. We had Batman and Robin, which we've made fun of in previous ones. And really, though, Marvel had always had trouble getting a franchise started. We talked about this during Howard the Duck, which you can find in our archives at NowPlayingPodcast.com. Marvel's first real success with a film was Blade in 98. And, you know, it's that's not so much a superhero film that seemed to really be riding a Buffy the Vampire Slayer type of wave going on with vampires and martial arts but that success did lead to x-men finally hitting theaters this had been in development hell for many years there had been a lot of directors signed a lot of writers signed including buffy's joss whedon and finally it got in the hands of brian singer who i knew and loved from usual suspects and he had done apt pupil with 
Ian McKellen, and he wanted to do some sci-fi, and this was the result. And this really did bring about a new age of superheroes. So it kind of started with Blade, but then after X-Men was a success, really, you gotta say, X-Men had a fairly modest budget for a superhero film. Oh, this is cheap. No, this is Fox not really believing in its characters here. They spent more money than they did on Generation X, but not much. <laughs> I mean, for a major summer tentpole, they really went with largely unknown cast in just the bare minimum of special effects. And really, it's a very short movie, too. It's only comes in, it clocks in a little over 90 minutes. That shocked me, too, honestly. The time. I thought this was a two-hour film when I sat down. But yeah, it's because of X-Men's unparalleled success that we then ended up with Spider-Man, Hulk, Daredevil, and really the age of Marvel movies that started in the 2000s and continues now to Avengers, which is why we're here. Yeah, Marvel had finally gotten its act together. I mean, it had so much trouble finding the right people to get it made on a big professional level. I mean, Fox was the first studio really with the clout and the budget to make a true vision of it. You know, they, they just didn't have any of their classic characters get the right treatment. Spider-Man was on Electric Company. Hulk was on TV. I mean, it just, yeah, they've never had their shot. Roger Corman, for Christ's sake, <laughs> had Punisher and Fantastic Four and Generation X. I mean, there was just no hope for it until Fox was willing to say, yes, we will give you $70 million. Give us a summer franchise. Now, when I heard this was coming out, I was really, really excited. Not because I was a big X-Men fan. I said during Generation X, I was not a huge X-Men fan. But I was a giant Brian Singer fan. And that could be boiled down to three words, The Usual Suspects. The Usual Suspects was a film that just I was awestruck by. Yeah, Singer was... In the club, as it were, of auteurs of the 90s. I mean, he was a late bloomer. I mean, all of the other ones had already been established, Tarantino, what have you, were the early 90s. But Usual Suspects put him in that list of cool directors to watch. And what would they do when they finally took the reins of Hollywood and brought their dark little indie visions to a big major mass audience. So, yeah, I agree with you. It's very exciting to think about what Brian Singer, the little crime noir guy, could do with a big property like X-Men. It could have been anything. And Stuart, what, I wasn't familiar with Singer when this film came out, but you talk about, you know, these indie directors bringing their kind of darker vision to films and the superhero genre. That's something that really got me interested. I wasn't a big X-Men fan when it came to the comics. I liked Wolverine because, you know, every male between a certain age likes Wolverine that reads comics. But I was really taken up by the vision that I saw in the trailer, just the the tone that it looked like, the the changes they made from the comic, especially with the uniforms. I'm sure we'll talk about that. But that's something that really caught my interest because I wasn't a big X-Men fan. I was after this, and th this film had a big effect on where the comic books went after it came out. It should be said, Singer is not an X-Men fan. He took the job not loving the series. I've seen him give interviews, and he was worried that the fans would be angry and that it would poison the publicity for the movie, but he felt like he had a vision for the story and that he could use the X-Men to tell this story, but he wasn't coming at it from a fanboy angle. He wasn't there just to make Storm and Cyclops and all of that become flesh and blood. He wanted to tell a story with these characters. 
And I think that is evident. I think that you can see that in this movie. Well, I'm sure that we'll talk about it as we go through. And Jacob, we're going to rely on you to tell us how faithful, if at all, this is to the comic book origins. But first, I think we should start off, as we always do, with a plot summary. Widespread molecular mutation has resulted in a global populace of superhumans with enhanced mental and physical traits. These anomalies might be the next step in human evolution, but for now they're considered freaks and monsters by the average person. Mutants everywhere fear U.S. Senator Robert Kelly's campaign to expose their identities in a public database, creating a rift within the minority community with the potential to erupt into war. On one side of the mutant debate is Eric Lenscher, who has survived man's intolerance to fellow man once before in a Polish concentration camp, and has rechristened himself Magneto, so named for his ability to magnetize and manipulate metals. He and his Brotherhood of Mutants, comprised of shape-shifting hottie mystique, agile and repulsive toad, and the hulking talon Sabretooth, are committed to violent opposition as the only solution to oppressors like Senator Kelly. On the other side is Charles Xavier, a wheelchair-bound telepath who goes by the name Professor X. He's opened a boarding school that acts as a sanctuary for young mutants coming to terms with their powers. Some of his top students include Storm, an African woman who can command the weather, Cyclops, who wears a visor to control a deadly laser beam produced by his eyes, and Cyclops' telekinetic fiancé, Jean Grey. They want to see mutants accepted by normal people as model citizens. Caught in the middle is Rogue, a runaway teenager who drains the life from whomever she touches, and Barb-Rawling Wolverine, a fast-healing amnesiac intent on learning how he came to possess a metal endoskeleton that can produce sharp claws from his knuckles. Both Professor X and Magneto make a play for these two mutants. Loner Wolverine is unsure if he wants to join Xavier's team, particularly with a goody-goody like Cyclops in charge, but he's also developing an attraction for Jean Grey and wants Rogue to attend the school. Magneto kidnaps Rogue so that she can power a machine he's built to turn normal people into mutants. He tried it once on Senator Kelly, and it succeeds in turning the intolerant politician into a freaky human jellyfish. Now Rogue will operate the machine from inside the torch of the Statue of Liberty, exposing a conference full of world leaders on nearby Ellis Island to powerful radioactive waves that will turn them into the very things they pass legislation against. But Magneto's experiment only works for a short time, as shown when gelatinous Senator Kelly oozes back to the school, seeking medical attention, and completely breaks down into a puddle. Professor X tries to use a powerful computer named Cerebro to determine Rogue's whereabouts, but Mystique has laced it with poison earlier in the day, and Xavier falls into a coma, thus leaving Storm, Cyclops, and Jean to save Rogue. Wolverine agrees to suit up, literally, and join the X-Men this once, and they fly to the Statue of Liberty and engage in mini-battles. The machine is switched off before Rogue dies, or the world leaders are mutated. Sabretooth and Toad are seemingly killed, Magneto is captured, and Mystique survives being stabbed by Wolverine, and takes on the guise of Senator Kelly, using his vote to defeat the Mutant Registration Act. Wolverine rides off to find a Canadian military base that might hold answers to his past, Rogue resumes her coursework at the school, and Professor X recovers from his poisoning and goes to visit Magneto in his non-metal holding cell, where the captured mutant predicts that the mutant uprising is still coming, perhaps in the sequel. So, I want to start off talking about that prologue scene. Whoa! (laughs) The last thing I was expecting, watching a movie about superheroes. Holocaust! (laughs) Yes, I remember there is a Holocaust scene in this film. I haven't seen it in a while. I did not remembering it start off with a Holocaust scene. You know, we talk about that darker indie tone. They're starting it right off the bat with the Holocaust. Doesn't get much darker, does it? 
No. And it frankly flirts with being in poor taste because truly, how are they going to earn this? Like, how are you going to start with people being ushered into a gas chamber and then end with superheroes doing kung fu? But <laughs> uh, there is a method to Singer's madness here. There is something being set up here in the death camp for Magneto. Or what's his real name? Eric. What is this setting up that we couldn't get just by seeing, you know, what so many other movies do where we get a glimpse of a tattoo on Eric's arm? Why did we need this scene? Well, I think there's a couple things going on here. Stuart, you talked about with Generation X how you saw the X-Men as this version of the hippies. And I really saw it, you know, reading it. Yeah, it was a bunch of white characters, but it was really a metaphor for the civil rights movement. I mean, Stan Lee has even said Professor X was this Martin Luther King type character, and he's trying to have this peace between humans and mutants. You know, mutants being these people that are just born a certain way, just like African-Americans. They can't control the color of their skin. They're just born a certain way. You have Xavier as Martin Luther King, and I always saw Magneto as more the militant Malcolm X character where he's more about, you know, let's separate. And so I thought going in with this whole Holocaust thing, it's bringing that up. You know, Professor X, it's too bad we don't really get his backstory, but there's a definitely a reason for Magneto's approach here. And also, I, I think it just thematically, this is a huge cast in this film. A lot of different characters. And the first part of this film, it's just jumping from character to character to character, kind of showing their backstory, showing them discovering their powers or dealing with their powers. So I just thought it fit thematically with how they're introducing this huge cast of characters. This is a story about intolerance and bigotry. That is what this story is about. So it makes sense that they would start here with this example of annihilation because truly what they're going to get to is the fact that the new Jews, as it were, will be this mutant underclass. That even in a land as free as America, this kind of Nazi fascist mentality can resurface when there is an underclass of people that the majority feels threatened by. I agree with you on the bigotry thing, but again, did we need this scene? Because like you say, this borders on poor taste, doesn't it? So couldn't we have implied it? I don't think we need to see a cut scene from Schindler's List with superpowers in order to understand the analogy being brought. And in fact, while the theme persists and is pervasive throughout this whole film, this scene never pays off. It's just, I guess, setting a tone. Yeah, it's making a metaphor here. It's starting at one example and leading us towards a new example of the same thing. It's making a simile. What we are about to see is just like this. That's always a little complicated when you bring up the Holocaust. A lot of things come up. I don't know if it's entirely comparable. There didn't seem to be any death camps for the superheroes. To bring up a film that came out later by another indie director, Inglorious Bastards, which is a fairy tale version of World War II. I mean, do you feel that's in poor taste that they just made up their own version of this very significant moment in human history? I definitely think it flirts with it. Yes, I do. Okay. I think, I think the only reason why it wasn't critically savage was it's because it allows a happy ending to the Holocaust and all of that. Hitler gets the shit beat out of him and killed. But Arnie, I wonder if it had just been a shot of Ian McKellen with a number on his forearm, would everyone have gotten that? I hate to say that, but I don't know if people's education level, they would have made that jump. I don't know if it would have been as overt and in your face as literally starting with 1944 Poland. I would like to think that everybody would get it. Me too. 
I mean, if they don't get what the numbers are, are they going to have to go home and research what happened in Poland? I mean, <laughs> if you're looking at that level of ignorance. Maybe they didn't know it was Nazis. I mean, I guess maybe. I mean, some of these will be children. I mean, any comic book movie with a PG-13 rating is going to get, you know, people that may not have learned about the Holocaust yet. And this is something we might have to get into again when we get to Captain America, the first Avenger. I mean, Captain America, number one, the comic book, is Captain America punching Hitler. But there's a difference between punching Hitler and showing us a death camp in a superhero movie. I just, I think there's a difference there. And it also might be worth pointing out that that issue probably came out during World War II, right? Actually, before America's involvement in. Yes, Oh, see? So, okay. So, it's a different thing to be war propaganda of its time and to be a movie reflecting on Holocaust. I guess I'll just end it with this. And this was a background story created for Magneto that came out in the 80s, that he was a Holocaust survivor. Later on, they actually did a whole miniseries called, I think, Magneto Testament, which was just about his time as a youth in a concentration camp. And the person who wrote it took it very seriously, did a lot of research to make it sure it was authentic. It wasn't a superhero comic, but it's something they haven't shied away from in the comic. It's something they've really explored. Oh, wow. See, I would have guessed they made it up for the movie. I didn't realize that this had ever been brought up in the comic. But it's valid enough that I can go for it. Thank goodness we don't spend too much time here. Just long enough to see him bend a couple barbed wire fences and get knocked out. And then it's a jump. Then we're off to somebody else. Now we're in Mississippi sometime after the year 2000. With Anna Paquin, who I think I saw the piano back at theaters, but I pretty much knew her from X-Men until I knew all of her from True Blood. I haven't seen True Blood, actually. I know I've I kind of shied away from some of this Invo vampire stuff. It's not really my thing, but I do remember her from the piano. She was quite good in that movie, memorable part. This kind of looked like awkward slumming stage for her. It was like she, on one hand, was a name, but she wasn't a star yet. And like so much of this cast, she feels B, if not C level. I think she's good here. I like her in this. Maybe she's slumming it or maybe she's looking for work. You know, there's a difference in those two statements. And really now she's doing full frontal on television. So is this really slumming it? No, fair. I agree with you. I think that she shows real vulnerability here. She's really good at seeming both a kid and a really wounded young adult. And it's a tricky balance. And I'm not exactly sure how old she is. I'm guessing that around 17, 18 years of age, it's a perfect choice to put her in this role. I don't know who Rogue is, but I know who this character is. And I can totally sympathize with her inability to realize what every teenager does, you know, messing around your first kiss, romance. She can't touch anyone at the risk of killing them. I do like her character, though, and I like that she's our point of view character into both mutants in general and the Xavier school specifically, because we really kind of follow her progression throughout this entire movie, even though she's really not the star. Such a big cast, so many characters you got to juggle through. We need one character for that viewpoint. And, and I'm glad they took someone new to this whole mutant thing. And so I think she was a good choice to be that viewpoint character. And the movie is about her. She's the object of Magneto's desire. <laughs> yeah, I didn't want to say desire, but but she is the one everyone's trying to get. Agreed. 
But we don't spend that much time with her because it's off to somebody else. <laughs> Jean Grey in New York. And then, and it's about this point when I realize this is not just a prologue, that this is how the whole movie is going to feel. We are just going to be leaping around. And because the cast is so enormous, it's just you got to learn everything you can really quick because you're not going to have that much time with them. Jean Grey gets kind of screwed in the whole superhero name department, right? <laughs> At least they don't go with her original name, which is even worse. What's that? Marble Girl? Oh. <laughs> yeah, I'll stick with Jean Grey. Although it reminds me of Earl Grey, which is a T. But <laughs> That Patrick Stewart drank a lot of in Star Trek. <laughs> but even Earl Grey sounds better than Marble Girl. <laughs> Stuart, to your point, you know, we talked about the whole Holocaust thing. There are times where it seems they have to paint things with a very broad brush because they have to cover a lot of exposition in the first act to get the story going. And she's presenting the mutant point of view. And you have Senator Kelly there arguing for mutant registration. This part for me just seems very broad, very comic booky, which I didn't want to feel in this film. This film, from a lot of it felt more adult or more realistic take. It just seemed like broad politics going on, and it just wasn't believable. I just, people in the year 2000 or in the, you know, not too distant future, is this how people would really react to this kind of situation? It didn't come off as real to me. You know what? In the year 2000, I didn't think it was very real. In the year 2011, I think it's scary how real it is. Yes, if the Twin Towers were down at this point in the film, maybe it would seem more real when I saw it. I mean, with Tea Party politics and birthers and everything, yeah, this is sadly true. And now when I watch it with this kind of post-9-11 perspective and post-Obama perspective, it's like, yep, this is what they do. They will capitalize on this and start talking about God-fearing Americans and saving us from the... I mean... Honestly, it's just shocking that this is a pre-9-11 movie with its having politicians symbolize terrorism and insurgent groups and all of the home security. It's scary. And maybe you needed those broad strokes at that time because, you know, this was 2000. Coming out of the 90s was a relatively peaceful era. So, you know, you didn't have a lot of debate going like that in, in politics. It's all about, you know, oral sex at the time. So maybe you needed that to create these villains. It just still comes off as cartoony to me. It is a big, broad stroke. And, and more to the point, I'm trying to find the link. At this point, three scenes in, Holocaust, teenager that sucks the life out of a boyfriend in Mississippi, and now a debate in New York. I really don't know what's going on until we finally see Ian McKellen again and his rival or compatriot. I don't, I don't know. Frenemy? Frenemy. That's a good word. <laughs> Patrick Stewart. This is where the, I feel like the movie finally clicks in and I finally get what's going on is when these two enter the debate. But Stuart, do you need everything spoon-fed right from the beginning? I mean, I like going into a movie where things kind of seem chaotic at the beginning. You're thrown right into the middle of things. I guess, you know, George Lucas talked about in Star Wars, I'm just going to throw you in the middle of the story with the first film. I kind of like that. And then you figure things out as it goes along. It seems like a more adult way to present a story, not spoon-feed everything right away and connect all the dots right away. I'm not a comic book person. Give me the spoon. I will eat it. (laughs) I need to know what's going on. I actually am going to come down the middle (laughs) and say that I can take some chaos. I mean, every movie at some point has that where who is this person? Who am I clicking with? But by the same token, it gets to be too much too far. And yeah, I do agree that this is a good point to introduce us to, you know, Gandalf and Captain Picard. So it's right up the correct wheelhouse here. 
Mm-hmm. These guys have presence. They're just cool. You go on screen, you look at them, your eyes gravitate to them. You know that these are the central figures. Well, whoever else they're calling the star and Rogue and Wolverine and whatever, to me, these two symbolize the two different thoughts. And they are the primary figures I'm going to be latching on to in this series, I feel like, from this scene. It's just a great scene. The two of them really elevate the material that they're given. And perhaps it's their accents. And their age. I do think that's a surprise when you think superheroes. You don't usually think senior citizens. It's kind of cool that we have elderly people who are speaking from authority. They just command a different energy than everyone else in this cast. And one, Professor X is in a wheelchair. I mean, how many times do you see a handicapped superhero? Right. That said... You know, when I heard all through the 90s that they were trying to make an X-Men movie, the only name I ever heard fans talk about is Patrick Stewart. And why? Because he's done sci-fi and he's bald? Are there no other bald sci-fi actors? I mean, it was quite a coup that they got him. I mean, I, I think he had all the Star Trek money. He didn't need the gig, but I guess Singer convinced him. But yeah, it was. it seems almost typecasting, like you hire him for his hairline. Yeah, I, I agree. <laughs> it was. I think what how they describe this is on the nose. <laughs> it's very on the nose to put Patrick Stewart in the wheelchair and call him Professor X. He's, it doesn't take a lot of work. Mm-mm. But let me say, I have, like I said, read some comics with some X-Men in them. Professor X is a character I've never liked because he always comes off like a bit of a jerk. He's always so heavy-handed, so high-minded, never really compassionate. He's, he's more like a drill sergeant. I think Patrick Stewart gives this character a heart that I haven't ever seen the character have in the comics. I'm sure there must be some comics better than the ones I've read him in that show him to be a character of some sympathy. But I've always just kind of thought he was a dick. But by putting Patrick Stewart there and bringing that Captain Picard authority, but also that sense of humor and the levity that he has as well as the gravitas really worked for me yeah he does bring a warmness to the role from all the x-men comics that i've read he's either like you said kind of like more drill sergeant or he's just kind of aloof and off doing his own thing letting other people run the school and, and train the students so you know if you got someone that's taking in runaways and kids you want them to be a nice guy you don't want them to come off as creepy or something <laughs> like that you want them to be a, someone you'd want as a father yeah, I mean, I've always wanted to see a uh, Professor X that cared about his X-Men. And I, like I said, I've been reading some of the really early comics, and I've also just seen him in some comics throughout the ages and the cartoon. And you just never get that kind of warmth or compassion that Patrick Stewart does exude. I obviously I can't speak to the comic, but I can say this much. By taking away his mobility, you're only left with what he can do as a personality. And so this needs to imprint on you as a person. To have a drill sergeant, to have someone nasty, I would think of Dr. Strangelove. I would think he would become a villain in my mind if you played him that way. You have to have him be wise and sagely. And Patrick Stewart just knows how to do that. He just naturally is that kind of actor. Now, Ian McKellen is one that just exploded for me around this time between Lord of the Rings and X-Men. And I'd seen him in Apt Pupil, but I didn't really know this guy. Yeah, he was having a late renaissance. He had not really had a major part before. I mean, I feel like he had been a British character actor for much of his career and probably would have gone on being that if... A, he hadn't worked with Singer and that pupil and, and formed that relationship and also done a movie called Gods and Monsters that got him an Oscar nomination. 
that was 98 and that really put him on the map and put him on the road to yeah these iconic roles I think he's great as Magneto. I don't know a lot about Magneto as far as how he is portrayed in the comics. Obviously, I didn't realize he was in the Holocaust or any of that. Jacob, is he fairly true to character here? And more to the point, is he really the central villain? Or is this something they made for the movie? Oh, no. He's been the X-Men's arch nemesis since day one, the first X-Men comic. And he's gone through an evolution. You know, originally started as a typical megalomaniac, evil guy and he's just out there for evil and, and they've developed his character throughout the decade you know they brought into the holocaust thing to try to explain his motivations and try to you know show his point of view why he cares so much about mutants because that's really what his point of view is is that they're the next step so why invest in regular people when they're already the future they're the ones that are going to take over but he's always always been the main villain or arch nemesis for the x-men yeah, again, and one of the early ones I read, I liked that in the comic, he was the head of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, because, you know, if you're a bad guy, you're just going to advertise that in your group's title. <laughs> <laughs> Brotherhood of Evil Mutants needs henchmen, but here is just the Brotherhood. And that's something they actually changed in the comic books, too, is they eventually just became the Brotherhood of Mutants instead of Evil Mutants. I think that's a wise choice. And truthfully, I don't think of him as evil. I think of the evil one being the senator. I mean, to me, he represents the intolerance and bigotry. These two are just trying to figure out the best way to handle it. And I think your comparison about Martin Luther King and Malcolm X seems very apt here. One is militant activism and one is pacifism and aspiring to higher mindedness. And I think that these actors are playing into that very well, but that the true evil is Bruce Davidson. And you know what? I love Bruce Davidson. I absolutely love this actor. He was the best thing about that terrible Knight Rider reboot series. I watched every episode he was in, and when they killed his character, I stopped watching. He is just so phenomenal with his line readings and the way he always comes off. I just, I enjoy watching this man work. Well, yeah, he, he definitely plays a good douchebag Republican senator. <laughs> I hated him. Not the actor, I mean the character. <laughs> yeah. So he was successful. But then we finally get to, I think, our real star, right? Rogue goes to Canada. Where it's cheaper to film. <laughs> but it's also uh, comic accurate because even I, who haven't read a lot of comics, know Wolverine's a Canuck. Well, I didn't know that. For a time, he was a Canadian special agent. I didn't know they had special secret covert forces in the Canadian government. But I thought they all wore the bright red outfits. He was a super Mountie. <laughs> yes. <laughs> he was Dudley Do-Right. That's awesome. With steel claws. Yes. If there's nothing else that I knew about X-Men, it's this Wolverine character. And a uh, big part of this movie hinged on the casting of this. They had to get this just right. Doug Gray Scott, a man that no one knows now, was actually the original lead for this and had to bow out because of Mission Impossible 2. And he's kicking himself. <laughs> Yes, and Glenn Danzig, they just never let him pass the screen test, poor guy. You guys know that. Did he actually try out for it? Uh, he did. He really wanted it badly. Are you talking about the guy from the band Danzig? Yes. yes. Yeah. He, I would he was, kill for a Glenn Danzig Wolverine movie. You and Glenn Danzig, but obviously he didn't <laughs> kill the right person. Yeah. Hugh Jackman, obviously, at this point, was nobody. 
And now he's like this huge star. But how phenomenal is he in this role? I always enjoy when I see this moment and it feels more and more rare. It's when you take a total nobody and see them minted as a star instantly. Instantly. Like, when is the last time that's happened? Harrison Ford in Star Wars, maybe? Like, it's so rare that we see a star born in front of us. Julia Roberts in Pretty Woman, it happens. But for the most part, it's rare that you see a mega movie star get made in one movie. And this is the part. I mean, he goes from zero to 150 right here. And I got to say, after this movie came out, there was a big revamp to the X-Men comics. And the writer, Grant Morrison, who was revamping it, he said Hugh Jackman was one of the things that this movie got right, is that they brought sexiness to the superhero genre. Arnie, you could correct me if I'm wrong, but was Marjorie ever into Marvel stuff until she saw Hugh Jackman as Wolverine? Because I know she's a huge Hugh Jackman fan. Let me put it this way. This man is sexy enough to pull off that haircut. And how many people really can do that? That is some bad hair that he is sporting and he pulls it off trust me i've been to cons i've seen it done badly (laughs) but you know what i'm surprised i had never been to a convention at this point i couldn't believe they could even make human hair go that way (laughs) (laughs) this movie has all kinds of bad hair when we get to storm i'm really gonna have (laughs) yeah but unlike storm this isn't a wig yes this is just a lot of aquanet (laughs) They took a lot of liberties with this film, with the look at the characters that I'm actually kind of surprised they kept the hair because they never put the mask on Wolverine. We never seen with the mask. I don't think I've noticed that. Really? Oh, wait, like it's a yellow thing and it goes over his eyes. Yes. Okay. Yeah, and it has this big swooping. I don't know. So his hair was whatever reason they decided in the comic to make his hair match his mask with these big (laughs) swooping things. I think it's because it's like helmet head, right? He's got that mask on for so long. The hair just goes that way. (laughs) Perhaps. I'm surprised they just didn't tone it down a bit. Stuart, did you wonder what was going on with the hair? Why it was like that? I figured Wolverine, he needed to look like whatever a Wolverine is. Honestly, I can't even visualize what the creature looks like, but I assume (laughs) it has a bad hair day like Hugh does, and that it's probably a similar (laughs) look. Poor Wolverine with a bad hair day. Here's the one thing that I know about Wolverines, though. I can see them in my mind because I've seen enough like sitcoms with the Wolverines being a high school mascot. Wolverines are supposed to be small, and that's one thing I know about the character from the comics is he's supposed to be small like small but tough Hugh Jackman is not small no he's very tall and yes I agree that was Glenn Danzig's biggest advocacy for himself is (laughs) hey I'm under five feet and built (laughs) that would have worked that would have worked because he does not portray that amount of Wolverine-ness. He's huge. And I mean, look what they had to do. They had to get freaking Tyler Maine and put him in platform shoes to get somebody taller. Good old Michael Myers. Yep. Well, you know what? I hate to say it, but most people would not know that about Walt Wolverine. And I think it might be unusual to have a shorter man. Uh, Tom surrounded- Cruise! Tom Cruise surrounded by women that are taller than him. If you were going to draw attention, Tom Cruise is a man that has disguised his height throughout his film career. Here, what you're saying is they should have accentuated Wolverine shortness. And I just think that that might be hard for mass audiences to accept, even if it's true to the comic book character. What I found really hysterical listening to the director's commentary is that they made James Marsden 
like stand on milk crates the whole movie and was always walking on a track and everything because I mean he's like five ten and everybody else on the set was like over six foot and he had to tower over Hugh Jackman so they had to keep putting him on boxes. Oh, I didn't I I didn't pick up on that. That's interesting. I just found that hysterical. Well, this is Hollywood, and I got a tip for you guys. Most everyone is short. Most leading men are under 5'9", and the milk crate thing is a pretty common thing. But Marsden doesn't strike me as short, so I guess it's just a statement to how tall everyone is in their boots. But Hugh's got a good introduction here. You know, we see him just as we imagine him. That hair, that cigar, that cage match. We know instantly who this guy is. And I just want to say, thank God he has his cigar. I'm not sure. Is right around this time Joe Quesada took over as editor-in-chief for Marvel and said, no superheroes are allowed to smoke. They are role models. We're taking away their cigars, their cigarettes. That's a staple for Wolverine. So I was so happy to see him chopping on a cigar. I don't advocate tobacco consumption, but it works for the character. If you have a healing factor, you don't need to worry about lung cancer. <laughs> that is very true. I love this introduction, though. You know, it seems classical, doesn't it? Like, this is our introduction. He's in a cage match. I mean, a Wolverine in a cage is so fitting. And Rogue seeing it. And then we go to a bar fight. Just, again, a great introduction. Instantly, we know who this character is. We're there with him. We're enjoying him. But my God, his he, he just captures the screen, doesn't he? I mean, he's sharing the screen with an Oscar winner, and he's stealing it. And we don't know who this guy is. This character actually has a lot in common with Rogue. I think that they serve the same purposes and, and probably why they have an attraction to one another is he's no more aligned with either ideology than she is. They're both kind of caught in the middle in the mutant debate. Well, and the other thing I like about him teaming up with Rogue or they being companions at the beginning of this film, and I'll expand on this more when we get to X-Men Origins Wolverine, but there's two versions of Wolverine that work for me, and I'll talk about one of them for this podcast. One, you know, is when it's the odd couple. He has this history of being teamed up with young teenage mutant girls. You know, <laughs> the, the classic example is Kitty Pride. There is a comic called Wolverine First Class where it's just him and Kitty Pride, this young teenage girl. And it works because they're the classic odd couple. You have the optimistic teen girl and this surly, drunken, cigar smoking, you know, brawler. And so I like that they have that odd couple team up here because it works. It's one of those things that works for the Wolverine character. And it's just so great. Their interplay in the camper when they're having the little back and forth. What kind of name is Rogue? What kind of name is Logan? It's just the right amount of funny. It's not yuck, yuck, but it works. I think Rogue is really having a moment here, too, where she's run away. She was in her first scene talking about taking a trek up to Alaska. Well, now she's seen a guy that spent the last 15 years in this gross mobile home, and it's giving her pause. You know, maybe Mississippi wasn't so bad. Maybe I should go back. I mean, I think it's just a nice way of establishing her just as well as it's establishing Wolverine. And then we establish Storm and Cyclops because Sabretooth attacks. We get this perfunctory fight where Sabretooth basically pummels Wolverine easily. And it, Wolverine's butt is saved by Storm and Cyclops. And here's where I feel like I missed three scenes. <laughs> Because I've been trying to keep up with the editing. I get it. We're moving fast. We're moving fast. But who the hell is Sabretooth? Why is he angry? Why, who is Storm? Who is Cyclops? Like, none of this made a damn bit of sense. <laughs> I will say, in the shooting script, there were a couple scenes that were never filmed. But there were scenes that introduced 
Cyclops and Storm, much like we're introduced to Magneto and Rogue. And we got to see Storm and Cyclops first discover their powers. Okay. And I, more than anybody here, probably wanted more introductory scenes. I wanted to know where these people came from. Just to have it be Rogue and Magneto wasn't enough. And I mean, I know we have to get on with the story, particularly with it's only going to be 90 minutes and not two and a half hours. But really, I felt like my connection with most of the characters was limited because I did not see their coming of age. See, I'm sick of origin stories. Just tell me a good story. And if you tell me a good story, I could figure out what's going on. I could go, you know, you drop a few lines. I could figure out what their background is. You know, you watch a lot of other genres. They don't have origin stories for their characters. You figure that out throughout the story. The One of the great things about X-Men is you don't need an origin story for these characters because they're born with a mutant gene. So... Do I really need to see the first time Storm created a lightning bolt? Do I need to see, you know, Cyclops open his eyes and shoot red beams out for the first time? No. They were born with the mutant gene. They got these powers. Oh, look, here's some people that just showed up all of a sudden and they got these uniforms on. I don't need all that background. Let me side with Jacob on this one because, honestly, we've got too many characters to find out where they all came from. And this screenplay focuses so much on Wolverine, but we need stars. We need primary characters. Yeah, it might be kind of interesting. By the same token, especially Storm is getting the shaft in this movie. But (laughs) it's nice that their introduction is at least heroic, right? They show up, they're in superhero garb and saving Wolverine's butt. And we know Wolverine's tough because we just saw him take down a whole bar full of guys with his claws. So... It's at least a good entrance. Yeah, I'll give you that. And I agree. We can't do it with everyone. All I'm saying is, if you don't give me a backstory, I'm not going to relate to you as much. And so consequently, Storm and Cyclops are just kind of their characters. I really, I don't care about them. The whole movie. The way I saw this movie, you know, Brian Singer with The Usual Suspects, kind of a mystery movie. I almost saw this as a mystery movie as well. You have these people mysteriously showing up. Oh, are they trying to get Wolverine? Are they trying to get Rogue? Who are these other people? You know, I I like that they kind of draw this out. They play out this mystery. Why is everyone after Wolverine? Oh, no, they're not. They're after Rogue. Why are they after Rogue? So I I didn't mind people just showing up all of a sudden because I saw this almost as a mystery film. I will say I did have some baggage going in. Again, didn't read a lot of comics. I knew Sabretooth and Wolverine were longtime rivals. So I saw this scene and I just thought Sabretooth was showing up to kick Wolverine's butt because that's what Sabretooth does. And can I just have a moment of nerd rage of how much I do not like this version of Sabretooth? I mean, in the comic, a lot of back and forth going on, long history, long rivalry between Sabretooth and Wolverine. Here, Sabretooth is like this animal. He uh, he kind of reminded me of like an evil Chewbacca. <laughs> I, I hated that character. And again, that's me bringing in the comic book baggage. But it, it's one of those moments where I just didn't like the change that they made. Well, I'm glad they didn't give him his comic book authentic pimp fur collar. But I hate this character, too. And I did the first time I saw this movie, and I still do. I think putting Tyler Maine in this role is terrible because he's a pro wrestler slash stuntman, he can't pull off any emotion with this character. He's just so flat. The only thing he has going for him is a physical presence. Because Tyler Maine was playing Michael Myers in the new Halloween, I didn't want to see the new Halloween. I was just like, oh, if it's Tyler Maine, he ruined X-Men, he's going to ruin Halloween. It turns out if you don't give him any lines, he's great. But here, he was terrible. He just 
brought the film down. Uh, I think you guys are over-exaggerating. As someone that doesn't know who Sabretooth is, and I just assumed he was Wolverine with Lee press-on nails instead of ones that pop out of his flesh, it's shorthand. You know what it is? They tell you who the bad guys are by looking at them. All the good guys are more or less humanoid with a, you know, a freaky haircut or whatever, and all the bad guys look like monsters. Toad, Mystique, and Sabretooth, they all look more monstrous. They all look more threatening. We know they're the bad guys. It just telegraphs it for a mass audience that does not know the comic book characters. Yeah, but that doesn't help the fact that when Tyler Maine speaks, it's just thuds. Did he speak? I didn't notice. Rarely, but yes. Too often for my taste. He wasn't the one who, when they opened their mouth, made me cringe. You're going to talk about Catwoman? (laughs) (laughs) I am from South Africa. What is with that accent? (laughs) This is an Oscar-winning actress, and this is from South Africa. Come on. No, I have no words for how bad her attempt at a South African accent is. The reason why they don't show her backstory, because no one would believe that she's from anywhere but America. Yeah, Storm is terrible in this film. She's another character that I've never really liked in comics. She comes across a little too high and mighty again, and she's kind of freaky with her lack of eyeballs. And she seems a little too powerful. I mean, if you can control where lightning strikes, it seems like nothing could defeat you. It's the Superman syndrome. Halle Berry, you know, I used to like as an actress. And seeing her here, though, I'm just surprised that the character has nothing to do And what is done is done really poorly, and the accent is just like the cherry on top. No, she's terribly miscast. I like Halle Berry in the right role, but this is not the right role for her, and she doesn't even seem to be enjoying it. Who would have killed in this role? Angela Bassett. Look at her Tina Turner, and she looked like She-Hulk. See her in a movie like Strange Days. That woman has major action movie presence. She should have been a big star, and this would have been the movie to make her that big star. And it's just such a shame she didn't land this role. I don't know why it happened. It fell on a cream puff like Halle Berry, but she is not capable of being Storm. It is a big shame, and we'll, we'll talk more in the future about what a shame it is that Halle Berry got this role. Yeah. It starts bad, and I dare say, even though she'll lose the accent in the future, it gets worse. And that wig, that fright wig. (laughs) (laughs) Whoever did hair in this movie should never work again. That's all I can say. Or they should go to Jersey Shore. (laughs) (laughs) What about Cyclops? You know, we haven't talked about him, and I think he's easy to forget because he's playing just like the straight-laced Boy Scout. There's not a whole lot of interest to Cyclops. And that's how I've always felt about him in the comic. I mean, he is the straight man. He's the one that's always seen as, I guess, the protege of Professor X, the one that's going to have to take over when Professor X eventually leaves. He's the most responsible, the most adult. I mean, so he's kind of stuck as being that boring character. Well, I don't know these characters, but I know this. James Marsden is to Brad Pitt what Skeet Ulrich is to Johnny Depp. They kind of look the same, but they don't have any of that movie star gravitas. I just feel like he's just kind of boring in a handsome model, but not interesting kind of way. And I just maybe it's because we don't see his eyes, too. That's a big tool for actors. And when you can't look at them in the eyes, it's hard to connect with them. All I can say is he doesn't register for me in this movie at all. I never have had a problem connecting with Jordy. Well, you can listen to my reviews that I'm playing and hear my problems. 
you know, this guy's career didn't ever really take off. I was watching this really bad raunch comedy called Sex Drive not that long ago, and all of a sudden my jaw hit the ground as I realized the evil older Stifler-like brother was Cyclops. But I like him in this role, though. I think he's well cast. He looks like an underwear model, and that's what Cyclops should be, as I understand it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he seems like a privileged, pretty boy that, yeah, you're not – he's too goody to be liked. And certainly we like Wolverine more and we're asked to like Wolverine more and we're rooting for Wolverine when they bring in the love triangle between him, Cyclops, and Earl Grey. <laughs> Are we rooting for Wolverine in that? I don't know. I think that there's factions. Not when based on the movie. Maybe you comic book people have formed an opinion. It's pretty clear who we're supposed to like in the movie. I don't get Jean Grey, though. I mean, her name's not very superific, and I'm not sure what I, I understand what her powers are. It's She's just kind of undefined to me. I don't know what she does. She's a psychic. No, Madame Cleo is a psychic. This chick's <laughs> got to be something more than that. Like I said, one trick pony in Generation X. No, she's telekinetic. That was her thing. I, I just read X-Men number one where she was introduced. She The psychic thing came later. She's Carrie. Okay. Carrie I could go with. But she seems so together. I guess because she's been at the school longer. That's the reason. She doesn't seem as conflicted as everyone else. Everyone else seems to be struggling with their powers. But she's just, I don't know, kind of blasé about it. Well... I don't think any of the ones from the school are really struggling. I mean, Cyclops, yeah, you take away his glasses and things go nuts. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's a handicap in that way. But Storm doesn't seem to struggle with her powers at all either. Well, no, you have this older generation, Storm, Jean Grey, Cyclops. They were like the original X-Men. They're the OX. Yes, the OX, the original X-Men. So they're more comfortable with their powers. They're more comfortable with their role in life. You know what I'm getting off of this? And I'm wondering if you Star Wars people are feeling the same way. These feel like architects from the Lucas world. I think mean, Gene, to me, plays kind of like Leia. Scott feels like Luke. Logan feels like Han. Gene feels like Leia. Patrick Stewart's Obi-Wan. Am I just crazy? Like, Did you get any of this vibe off of this? This is, this is how the movie's kind of coming across to me. Not saying that it's intentionally patterned, but the relationships feel that way. And the bonds. It's like, maybe I don't want to see Gene be with Scott because Luke didn't end up with Leia. They were brother and sister, and, and that's how they feel. I couldn't disagree with you more. I don't get that feeling at all. I don't, I don't feel any Star Wars archetypes coming into this film at all. So, no. I never thought of it, but again, I came into this movie with some X-Men knowledge. But now that you've said it, they're there. Your parallels are spot on, and... In a way, I mean, doesn't Logan have the classical hero's journey? He has the call that he refuses, and then he ends up having to save the day. You know, he initially tells Rogue to go away. He ends up risking his life to save her. So the story as itself is very much your classical hero's journey with Wolverine in the lead. Yeah, it's it's classical archetypes. It's not Star Wars archetypes. Yeah, that's I mean, the it's... thing is Star Wars played on the classical archetypes. Star Wars didn't invent them. Star Wars brought them to modern day. So while your parallels to Star Wars are apt, Star Wars didn't invent them. It's just that's where they were. That's where they are for our culture. And yeah, you can draw those parallels here, too. Yeah, I, I don't know why. And, and Storm is definitely Chewbacca. That accent is totally <laughs> un, unacceptable. If you go to the cutscenes, they're all Storm scenes. <laughs> I wonder why. <laughs> you know what happens when you put Halle Berry in a movie? The same shit as everything else. 
Perhaps my favorite character of this whole menagerie of weirdos, though, I'd got to go with Mystique. I don't know. Is she big in the comic? Because I feel like she looms large in this movie. And it's not just because it's Romaine Stamos naked with blue scales. Hey, you say menagerie. I say menage. It's all the same to me. <laughs> I thought you said she's going to be your favorite because it was a blue naked chick the whole time. That's why she's my favorite. <laughs> She was pioneering blue people sex long before Avatar, but then after Smurfette. So I don't know. Maybe she's a Smurfette ripoff. She is one of the main villains in X-Men. I mean, she's not like in every issue, but she is one of those constants, you know, like Magneto, Juggernaut. You know, there there's certain villains that are mainstays. And yes, she is one of them. I mean, she does have some major plot points in the comic. I mean, she is the adopted mother of Rogue. You know, another huh. character in this film. And she's yeah. also the mother of Nightcrawler, who we're going to be introduced to in one of the subsequent X-Men films. So she plays a major part in the X-Universe. Yeah, I just like the way her power works. I mean, I think that's a large part of it. It's so much fun to be able to successfully mimic other people. And I was confused for a while because I was thinking she was like the T-1000 would need to touch them in order to change them. That's what it kept reminding me of was T-1000. But no, she can just assume anybody whether she's met him or not, right? Yes. And the other thing is what I like, again, talking about some of the changes here, she does not run around naked in the comic book. She has like this white dress on. This is much better. I love yes. this better. <laughs> because of nudity. Um, no, and it makes sense because they're like, well, you know, if it's her skin that changes, how is she supposed to come? You know, is her dress supposed to change every time? You no, know, it's mm. her skin that mimics the textures of, of stuff. So she could just run around naked. She's proud to be a mutant. She's out and she's proud. I just wish I was a makeup designer. That's all I can say. John Stamos is a lucky, lucky, bland man. And so is Jerry O'Connell. I like the character, though. I like the eyes. Yeah. I mean, you've got this completely midnight blue hottie, but you got those eyes on her that just and say what you will. Rebecca Romaine for a supermodel actually can act. She certainly shows up Tyler Maine. Really, the characters in the movie a lot more than Rebecca Romaine is. <laughs> She's usually somebody else. Yes, I agree. But I, I feel like of this particularly of this rogue gallery of villains. Other than Magneto, the only one that really hits their marks, really seems threatening and cool and I want to watch, is Mystique. I mean, Toad, the less said, the better. I don't even understand what he is. Well, yeah, Sabretooth and Toad, they're just fashioned after animals. They don't have any real powers except, you know, one's a Sabretooth tiger and one's a frog. He swings around on his tongue. He's <laughs> And this is Darth Maul, right? Yes, this is Ray Park's attempt at a speaking role. I would like to point out, George <laughs> Lucas replaced Ray Park's voice in The Phantom Menace. Ray Park delivered all the lines, and in post, George is like, well, we'll leave that Jake Lloyd alone, but Ray Park has got to go. <laughs> so, <laughs> this was Ray Park's chance to shine. No makeup, well, no kabuki makeup, and his voice. And don't we just all wish Brian Singer had also replaced his voice? <laughs> He's bad, too. I just wish they replaced the character. I do not like Toad. That's where I'm at, Arnie. I don't have a problem with Ray Park. I just think it's much more silly than a, having a man emulating a saber tooth as a man with green skin, goggle glasses, and a giant tongue. I mean, that just... <laughs> think about who he's going to have to go up against. You know, a guy with a metal skeleton, someone that controls the weather, someone that shoots laser beams out of their eyes, and you're a frog? <laughs> Magneto, not the best choice. Well, I want to say I have nothing against Ray Park. I've met the man in person many times. He's a very nice guy. He is an incredible, incredible ninja. 
he's humble too. But this man, he'll like stand up at the middle of the autograph table, do three backflips, then sit down and sign some autographs again. I mean, this guy is astounding. And I like that they give him a little Darth Maul aside. Did you notice that when he's like playing around with a pipe like it's a lightsaber? Yes. I love that. Yeah, I actually thought it was more like Gambit, who's one of these really popular X-Men characters, has never made it into any of the films. He's in Origins Wolverine. He did make it into Wolverine, that's right. But he's known for having this raw that he spins around. So I, I actually thought it was kind of a Gambit reference. Yeah, I could see that. But hey, it's Darth Maul. He's got a big stick. He's vamping. <laughs> but I don't necessarily think, yeah, Toad is not a very good villain. Can Toad spit resin? He does in one scene. I know Toad can spit resin. <laughs> can Toads spit resin? I think there's a certain type of poisonous ones that are spitting Toads. I okay. think so. Okay. I didn't know where the spit Toads came from. But no, he is definitely non-threatening. And Jacob, did the X-Men not have a very good rogues gallery of villains that Magneto, Mystique, Sabretooth, and Toad? I, again, at one point, there were... Hundreds of thousands of mutants. They could have come up with something better than this. We'll see a lot more villains in, uh, when we get to The Last Stand, the third X-Men film. But yes, there were better choices than Toad. I think maybe they picked him because he was one of the original villains. I've never liked this character in this movie. The thing I do like is when I think about X-Men villains, they seem to fall into certain types. Like, I would think maybe Juggernaut, who we will get to later. But, you know, he'd be redundant if you have Sabretooth, right? You, you just need one strong person. If you're trying to get a team of unique people, Toad kind of worked for me in that he has a totally different style of attack than anyone else, being that he leaps. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He lands on you and crushes you like a cement frog. I guess my problem with him is if it's Ray Park and he's this ninja... Why don't they let him use his natural skills? It seemed like so much of the film was him swinging around on his tongue, really bad wire foo hopping around. Let the guy use his natural skills. If he, In real life, he's doing triple backflips at the autograph table. Well, let's show that instead. You wouldn't know it that he has those skills from watching this movie. It does feel like everything is predicated around a fake tongue and him vomiting up resin. True. I mean, I know Ray Park from four movies. G.I. Joe... Star Wars, Sleepy Hollow, and this. And this is by far his worst role. That's it. They should have given him more to do. I mean, it seems like Mystique is also a bit of a ninja. She's like kicking and kickboxing and she's been doing her tie bow and she can fly a helicopter and she could shapeshift. Toad, he's like spray painting a fake Statue of Liberty piece and carries Rogue's body. I, I, Toad's not given a lot to do for a toady. Yeah, for whatever reason, he's just coming up short here, and I'm already feeling like the X-Men are clearly balanced towards the good winning, because if this is Magneto's team, he's just not going to win. So when Rogue and Wolverine get to the mansion, and they're introduced to the mansion, I think I know where Professor X gets his money. Corporate branding. That X is everywhere. I want big doors that have my letter on them. I want my wheelchair to have a wheel that is my letter. Everything in that place is an X. It's craziness. Xs are cool. Xboxes, uh, Generation X. I mean, I feel Generation like... X? We just saw Generation X. It's I'm talking cool. about the real Generation X, not that stupid thing. <laughs> it's just X was extreme. I mean, it's just used special effects. I mean, it's just used for shorthand and cool lingo so much. It's just our coolest letter in the alphabet. There's just no denying it. 
I'm just saying, if you're building a house, I am building a house. I'm not going to try to put a C in every doorway. <laughs> that would make you MC Hammer. <laughs> <laughs> so you're saying Professor X is a psychic MC Hammer. He is never going to move. Let me put it that way. He is never going to unload that school. They will have to demo it. There is nobody that is going to come in and take it away from him. So this is where I feel the movie goes into comic book world. I mean, Stuart, when we were talking about Kick-Ass, you said you like comic book movies that have an element of realism to them and kind of try to ground this fantastic. And to a degree, I think this movie really has. I mean, we've got the Holocaust and we've got politics and it really kind of feels we're in the real world until we get to magneto's plot and magneto's lair because all bad guys have to have a lair he's not a fugitive he's not on the run i don't know why magneto can't just have a condo why does he have to like have a lair in the side of a mountain more to the point where do you think this lair is because we go from alberta canada where Sabretooth is I think he has to walk home because they don't even have like a cool jet like the <laughs> X-Men do. And then the rest of the time, the action is taking place on the East Coast, nowhere near Alberta. So I think it just conveniently moves wherever they need it to. Well, he can move all the metal and the layer seemed primarily metal. Maybe he just floats it wherever he needs to be. Maybe. You know what I do like? Magneto, he wants a bridge. It just forms under his feet. And it's so effortless. He's not straining. He's lived with these powers for, what, 70 years? And he's just able to use them. They are as natural to him as breathing. And I like that. This is a movie on a tight budget. But when they use it, they use it for the right thing to set atmosphere. And I like the symmetry of each set. I mean, like, when we finally get to Cerebro, and I was surprised that it was the same Cerebro as last time. <laughs> You'd be like, where's the, where's the Latin American for it to be yeah. close with? Yo, yo, yo! Cerebro! I was impressed that they're set up the same way. They're all involved planks. You know, there's like a big abyss and a plank. Again, it feels very Star Wars, like Empire Strikes Back there, where there's like a big abyss and a long gangplank with something cool at the end of it. And you see that again and again. You see that Cerebro. You see that in McKellen's lair. You see that at the end in his prison. It's just, it's nicely thought out art direction on, on this part on a minimal budget. Yeah. Magneto looks like a total badass in his lair. Like you said, Arnie, the, the metal planks just showing up. He waves his hand very, you know, Stuart, you want to keep bringing Star Wars into this. He does his force move. The bars just open right up. He walks through, waves his hand again. They just close up. So, yeah, I like how they used his lair to play up his powers and really demonstrate what he can do. But the plot is turn all of the world's leaders into mutants. So that way there will be no anti-mutant bias because the world will be run by mutants. Not necessarily Magneto himself. It'll still have the same ruling structure. They'll just be all mutants thanks to Magneto's machine. Now, this bothered me, too, because I get that mutants are genetics and it's born. I didn't like the conceit of the machine that could do it. I mean, it, obviously it fails because he tries it on Kelly, thinks it works, but then Kelly melts. I like the idea that, hey, we're going to turn them into mutants and they're going to get a taste of their own medicine. They're going to have to be outsiders like us. Like, I could go with that. The fact that it's a super-powered magnet that only he could run with his powers of magnetism, like, he can't get a machine to turn the turbines? Why does he have to do it? Like, that's my problem, is that the way he's going to go about carrying out this plot device is just stupid. Yeah, I, I don't know why you'd have to put the old man in the gyroscope. 
That doesn't make any sense. I mean, like, is he going to go bungee jumping later? I mean, like, really? This It looked like some extreme sports thing. You know, I'm like, I just don't see senior citizens doing this for any plot. That said, I really liked the exchange of the way that they turn the senator. And I like that character arc for the senator that I don't think they even knew what it was going to do. They just knew that exposing him to the amount of radiation would get his X factor jumping, right? They didn't know what he would become, but they knew he would mutate. Correct. That's what I got out of it anyway. Because when they lock him up, they didn't know he would turn into the blob and be able to ooze through the bars and, and get outside. That effect freaks me out. <laughs> I love it. It's great. Yeah. Oh, yeah, but it's just so gross. The way his, like, head mushes. Ish. His eyeballs start popping out as it goes through the bars. Yeah, it's great. It's kind of Terminator 2, and I like that. It was a good callback to that. I mean, yeah, it's Terminator 2 and the fact that a liquid thing goes through bars, but Terminator 2 did it, and it was cool and slick. Here it's gross, and it's like a rubber water-filled stress doll. You know the ones you squeeze and the eyes pop out? <laughs> That's what this was like, only human and whoosh, kind of just kind of, it, it gave me the willies. Yeah, in a good way. I agree with you. And I love the little joke that when he finally washes it up on the beach, it's a little kid torturing a jellyfish that first sees him. I think that was a nice little moment. It's a good character arc. I like the way that this is going at this point. And when he's washed up on the beach, this is the first of something I think that will just make it a habit on now playing to mention. Stan Lee cameo. Yes. I didn't notice. Where was he? He was running the hot dog stand. Oh. I think this is the first time I noticed it. I never noticed it before. I hate in the new films how they have to make it so blatant that, hey, look, everyone at Stanley. I like that. It was just a very subtle background character selling hot dogs. He doesn't say anything stupid. It's just I just hate when they point it out in all the new films now. Yeah. In some films, it's subtle. And in other films, it's garish. But this was the first and it works perfectly. He's in like three different angles. He's there for a day and it's a nice little aside because even though he's not the one who made the X-Men famous, he is the one who made the X-Men. Along with Jack Kirby. Well, yes. And he's heading back to the X-Mansion to seek help. And meanwhile, we have Logan stabbing Rogue, which I thought was a really nice moment and a good way to introduce that Rogue not only just like kills with a touch, but can steal mutants powers. That's something that hadn't really been established, which if you didn't know it from the comics, you still wouldn't know until that scene. Yeah, it's an informative scene. I actually thought it was a little too far. I mean, he already had a wake-up scene with Jean Grey, and he didn't stab her. I don't know why he would rise out of bed with claws drawn. But yes, by watching this short little scene, we now understand that Rogue just doesn't suck the life out of you. She's borrowing your powers, whatever powers they may be, and that's important to Magneto's plot. I just didn't get why Rogue was so close that she could hear Wolverine having a bad nightmare where she could just walk over to him. Was she sharing a room? I mean, isn't she a teenager still? I thought she had actually just gone to visit Wolverine either because she's, you know, wanting the comfort of the friend she came there with or perhaps for something a little bit <laughs> less noble. But I got the feeling she just happened to be there and, oh, he's having a bad dream. Let me wake him up. I mean, they give us the impression that Wolverine is it because he's the big star and we're following a lot of scenes with him and the banter and all of that. But truly, it's a good trick when we finally realize that he is not the focal point for Magneto's plan, that it's really rogue. And we learned that at the train station. 
That was a neat trick because, yeah, Rogue seems so forgotten. Rogue seems as forgotten as Storm. I mean, yeah, she has her moments with Iceman and everything, but here's the thing. When I was seeing this in theaters, I was kind of rolling my eyes. Yep, it's all about Wolverine. It's always about Wolverine. And when it wasn't about him, I thought that was a great way to play with the audience. Mm -hmm. Watching it again, I don't like the fact that there's a line. They should have cut this line where Cyclops and Professor X are talking and Cyclops says, what does Magneto want with Logan? And Professor X says, I'm not sure it's Logan he wants. I wish that line hadn't been there. Just mess with us a little more. Yeah, Mm -hmm. watching it this time, that line really stuck out because I was taken by surprise the first time. Now, this time, you know, I knew the twist was coming up. I was paying more attention to see how they try to hide that twist early on in the scene where we think Sabretooth is going after Wolverine and they just say, you didn't return with the person you're supposed to return with. They never said you didn't return with Wolverine. But yeah, that line blows it now now that i know it's coming that line really sticks out like a sore thumb and here's where magneto really bust out the whole cape and helmet like outfit too like is this like something made up for the movie or is this how he's depicted in the comic books because this is like liberace fabulous (laughs) (laughs) this is actually very muted in the comic book he had the cape and the helmet but they were very bright red here they muted them a bit but yes that is true to the comic Okay. Now, one thing I do know about the comic is that doesn't that helmet, isn't that how Magneto is protected from Xavier's mental attacks? And that's why outside the train station, Xavier can control Sabretooth and Toad, but not Magneto. Yeah, and they dropped that line is that he created this helmet so Professor X couldn't get into his head. And the reason he knows how to block his powers is because he helped build Cerebro back in the day. So, yeah, that, that's to block any influence from Professor X. Why didn't he build, say, four helmets? <laughs> so that way Sabretooth, Toad, and Mystique could have some. No, they it's would, a good they would, point. Look, they would not look nearly as cool in those helmets. <laughs> Toad's beyond help. There's no fashion <laughs> you could give him. You know, somebody kiss him and turn him into a prince because he could not pull off this look. It's bad. Uh, you know, I, uh, yeah, they would look like assholes wearing those. They'd look like Devo, really, with all the films on. <laughs> I also would have liked some explanation as to how the helmet protects him. Put a blinking LED on the frickin' thing. You know, something to let me know it's not just an alloy or something. It, it reminds me of people who line their hats with tinfoil so the aliens can't mind probe them. I will say this. I love the way he manipulates the police cars and messes with the cops that are at the standoff. This is where I I really can see the power of Magneto in this scene. I think, you know, when he busts through the train and even Wolverine because he's got a metal skeleton. Everyone's powerless because metal is just so plentiful. It's really a cool moment for him. It is. In that moment on the train where he's controlling... Wolverine, I almost had this geek moment because one of the huge milestones of the X-Men comic is when Magneto actually removes all of adamantium from Wolverine's skeleton, rips it right out through his skin. And like I, I for a second there, I geeked out and thought they were going to go that way. But no, but it was still a, a great moment. You do because you think power of magnetism. What's that going to do? But it really demonstrates how powerful he is. Mm hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think he's called the most powerful of all mutants. And Stuart, earlier this podcast, you said it was a one-sided fight. Well, really, I think Magneto's all you need. (laughs) I don't even know why he needs henchmen. Uh, Mystique's good to have around, but you're right. The other two are kind of blah. Kind of like Storm and Cyclops. 
<laughs> yeah, maybe so. But I am going to complain about this train scene, and here's going to be a complaint that I'm going to bring up again later, too. But it, it really starts here is by the time we get to the train scene, I'm starting to get a little itchy because this is a superhero film, right? I mean, ostensibly. And yet there's been so little action. And then we get to the train scene and we get our first bit of action. But it just it's it seems so perfunctory and it's like actionist interruptus. It's not clicking for me. I want my superheroes to kick a little ass or have a little ass kick. And it's not happening. Well, I'll agree with you that the action is not well staged. It all feels like very choreographed wire foo. And it's not satisfying. Anytime we're having a fight, it becomes particularly problematic for me on the Statue of Liberty. Yes. But it's just not rev you up moments. That said... I'm not a big action movie guy, so I prefer the tone of the movie when it's not in action. I wasn't longing for these moments to happen. When they happened, they felt like distractions, not like things I wanted to see. Yet none of the action in this film really works for me. It all seems slowed down, like you said, Stuart. Just wire foo, but I don't think Brian Singer had done a lot of action films before this. None, none. Yeah, and it feels that way. I mean, that's when this movie hurts is when they try to do these big action scenes. You talk about the Statue of Liberty. It doesn't work for me, but I've enjoyed all the other moments in this film, the character development and, you know, the the odd couple with Rogue and Wolverine and this mystery. Why are they after Wolverine? No, a plot twist. They're really after Rogue. Like, I like those moments so much that these bad action scenes don't hurt it too much for me. No, this is a mental movie. It should be about the politics. It is a chess game. It is about mind against mind. And and that's why we don't need a whole lot of action. I'm not saying there shouldn't have been any or that it's okay that these action scenes aren't good. It's just not the focal point. You see, I want a good superhero film like we saw with Kick-Ass that has good characters and good themes and intelligence. But I also want it to have good action. And that's why I'm at a superhero film is for action. I'm not at a superhero film for character drama. I want some of it, but it didn't get me in the door. And this is like me sitting down to watch a porno and it has very few sex scenes. And what there are... The camera's only half on them. I do agree. These are terribly staged. I actually think they're well choreographed, but Singer doesn't know how to film them. Perhaps. I think that there's some good action here that with some different camera work, some different angles, some different editing could have been some different music. The music of this film sucks. It's just so bland. Well, Michael Kamen is a big action movie scorer. He did Lethal Weapon, Die Hard. He does... All of the big ones. All I know is these superheroes have no theme. Where's the da 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 or the da 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 There's none of that for X-Men. They they get shafted on the score. No, it does feel like these are the new additions to the superhero genre. We haven't covered enough of them to really talk about it, but when I think about superhero movies up to that time, Superman and Batman, yes, they were about one dude and they're anthemic, and here it's just a different feel. It's it's an ensemble, and the colors aren't bright. It's all steel and gray. It just, I don't know, it's just a different look and feel. It feels different from Richard Donner's Superman. It feels different from Tim Burton's Batman. It feels like the next step. It feels like the next evolution in superhero movies. It is something new, and I'm not rejecting it. I recognize it's not doing what super movies have done in the past, but I guess I'm kind of glad. I'm not going to apologize for wanting action. No, uh, no, Arnie, I agree with you. I In a superhero movie, yes, I want action. But there is enough in this film where the mediocre action, it didn't hurt it as much as if all that cerebral stuff wasn't going on. 
I almost did kind of like the fight when Mystique turned into Wolverine and it was Wolverine against Wolverine. Conceptually, it's neat. Still in execution, it's spotty. But that one came close to giving me all that I really needed in that action department. I agree. It was the best of the fight. It really, Wolverine versus Sabretooth on the Spire should have been the best, but Wolverine versus Wolverine was the best. I honestly think that Singer was hampered by the fact that it was in close quarters and he had to get the camera up in there. And thus, it accidentally made a good scene. Maybe. But here's the thing. If we're going to make this more a, a mental, cerebral superhero film, why would you take out your biggest heavyweight? I can't, I do not like the way they treat Patrick Stewart and knock him out of the climax. Why did they do this whole thing about Mystique poisoning Cerebro and putting him in a coma for the last 30 minutes? Well, because he's too powerful. <laughs> they needed to cripple him further. Oh, I see. I mean, he can defeat any obstacle that comes his way is what you're saying. They yeah, might. otherwise they need four helmets. It goes back to what I was saying. <laughs> mm. <laughs> you get Devo or you take him out. Now, what I don't like is how they take him out. It's just such techno babble. Mystique not only looks like a person, but down to their retinal pattern. And then she goes in and just injects, what, blue dye? I don't know what it was. Exactly. It, it made as much sense as a super magnet that makes you into a mutant. So. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's techno babble. It is nonsense. It is. It's not even techno babble because they don't explain they don't yeah. to explain it. They just go, there's no technology to it. Yeah, she poisons him and he falls over and we don't know if he's going to pull through. And then I love the fact that Jean Grey goes, "Well, I'll finally try out Cerebro so she can figure out the big plot is to attack the UN." Well, duh. I. I need to go to Cerebro to figure that out. <laughs> Every time you turn on the TV, they're talking about the meeting of the world leaders in the UN and the Ellis Island. I'm like, really? Really? Yeah, this was a very weak point in the movie. Maybe the lowest point when they take out Patrick Stewart and I think, wow, here's your best asset and just out for the rest of the movie. It is disappointing and really seeing Patrick Stewart without a shirt on is also very disturbing. <laughs> he's in fine physical shape. But he's, he's old. He's, yeah. But we finally get to see the X-Men like suit up. Isn't this the moment you're waiting for in a superhero movie? Putting on the uniform, going out to f defeat the final villain. and Bringing out the gimp. Yes, bringing out. Well, good point, Arnie, because the internet wasn't what it is today, you know, with nerd rage and, and the forums. But this is one thing I still heard on the internet. Oh my gosh, they're not wearing the yellow and blue spandex. They're putting leather uniforms on them. And it was like this big, this is probably the biggest nerd controversy for this movie was they changed the costumes. You know, that's the sacred cow with superheroes. And I got to say, I like the costume changes. I like, you know, again, we talked about the muted color palette here. They updated it, made it look realistic. And, what happened to the X-Men comics after this film is that they adapted similar type of uniforms. They got rid of the spandex for a while and they went into, you know, Wolverine walked around w without a shirt on and a leather jacket and a pair of jeans. Cyclops and the, some of the other characters had these like leather type uniforms. I like that they updated. I thought they looked great. Even I knew with my limited knowledge that they wore yellow leather or whatever, and they make a joke out of it. It's a throwaway line that Cyclops says as they get into the plane. They would have looked like assholes wearing that. <laughs> there are things that you can do in the comic book that you cannot do in the movies. And putting your superheroes who already have funny haircuts and yellow jumpsuits is not going to win over the masses. I agree. You can't put Hugh Jackman in yellow and blue spandex. The audience would be rolling in the aisles with laughter. That said, I'm not sure that I like the all black 
S&M suits either. You know, it's it's a little too dom for me. Well, I don't know. It, they're black. I agree. I don't feel like they found the greatest costume design yet. I feel like there's probably still a way to make them look better, but it's functional. It makes sense. It's good enough. We understand, most importantly, that they're all a team now. Everyone is on the same page as they get on the plane. And that's been the big battle for Wolverine. Up to this point, which side is he going to join? He's been playing the fence. He's too cool to be with the school, and yet he's not a Magneto militant either. And so what's he going to do? And that all plays out so nicely. When Bruce Davidson dies, he really understands the consequences, and he realizes he has to suit up, and he has to fight for this cause. Because he's the only good mutant that can fight worth a damn. True. For me watching this, this is really a Wolverine movie with some X-Men characters in the background. You know, yes, he's our point of view character, but it's also a movie that's basically about him. The whole reason, you know, there's so much times focused on Xavier talking into Wolverine sticking around at the school. And he's like, oh, I'll be able to reveal your past if you stay here. I mean, for me, this really is a Wolverine movie. So this moment where he suits up and becomes, you know, one of the members of the team. I mean, it's his story arc. It's about him. Yeah. Yeah, I I completely agree. And I think it needs to be, if this is the first chapter in a long series, we will have time to follow the supplemental characters. He is our entry point. This is the first one. This is the world. It's the right choice for now. And in fact, the final movie of our X-Men series has no Wolverine in it. So that'll be interesting. So we get to the Statue of Liberty and each person does get their moment to shine in a fight. Wolverine versus Wolverine. Cyclops and Gene versus Toad, and they lose, actually, don't they? Yeah, because it takes a lightning bolt to take care of Toad. Can I just say the worst line? <laughs> the worst line in maybe any movie we've watched in the Marvel retrospective at all. Any of them. Man-Thing, Howard the Duck, any of those puns. It's got to be Halle Berry here saying, do you know what happens when a Toad gets struck by lightning? The same thing that happens to everything else. I mean, that is <laughs> that is a, yeah a bad line. All right, I will say at this point in the theater, I almost walked out. <laughs> I wasn't getting the action I wanted. This wasn't the movie I wanted. This line comes. She's there. The fright wig's blowing, and she asks what happens to a toad when it gets struck by lightning. I almost got up and left the theater. I was that turned off by this movie at that point and that was just and it's so bad that this time around i googled that line because i wanted to know does something happen to a toad do they like glow and live is there something (laughs) special that happens to a toad no nothing special happens to a toad but what i did learn from googling that line is strangely i don't know how the hell it made it into the script but it's from like Four drafts earlier, it is one of two things, two lines kept from Joss Whedon's original script. And Joss Whedon's known for writing good, snappy dialogue. And this is garbage. I don't know where it came from, but the same thing as every other bad line. It needed to be cut. It's bad. (laughs) Real bad. It's a redundant silly inane line that it it just takes you out of the movie and then of course barry being the one delivering it as she's blowing him away with a lightning bolt it's just a fail moment if this is supposed to be her moment to shine it is the moment where i realized angela bassett got screwed (laughs) and i really was shocked reading the novelization that that line was in there because i just felt like this was maybe a last minute thing no it's it's right there it's in print too it just sucks 
Mm. We're led to believe that Toad and Sabretooth are dead at the end of this film. I can't remember if they show up in the other ones, but it appears they're dead and they were killed by X-Men, by superheroes, which is typically a pretty big taboo that the superheroes don't kill. Yes, you have people like Wolverine who will or the Punisher, but your typical superhero does not kill. And one of the big themes of this film is pacifism versus activism. We're not going to kill humans to make our life better. We're going to try to find out and figure out a way. And so when you have, you know, Storm killing Toad and, and Sabretooth dying, that's something that kind of bothered me is that we see them instead of capturing these villains, that they're actually out there just killing them. You know, I think this is something that happened around the early 80s. Sure, in the 70s and 60s, la-di-da, we're going to take the prisoner to jail. And Superman was still doing that at the end of Superman 1. But then in the 80s, we started getting tough action heroes who kill their enemies at the end, right? I mean, Beverly Hills cop Victor Maitland gets one in the head. Lethal Weapon, Gary Busey dies. You know, all of these movies, the tough action stars had to kill the villain at the end because it was just too much of a cliche. If they go to jail... They're going to get a good lawyer and get out. They're going to OJ it, right? So putting them in prison doesn't stop them. But I think Batman, when they killed the Joker and then they killed the Penguin, it, you know, it set the precedent. Superheroes will kill the villain every time. Mm-hmm. And it's not really necessarily a good precedent. I would like to see Mystique continue at least. And we do. She did survive this one, it is said. She transforms into a guard and they take her to the hospital and she becomes the senator at the end. So she made it and Magneto makes it. But I don't think it's a taboo anymore for superheroes to kill in self-defense. It, it just is what they do in every movie now. Plus, they both fell. They could have come back. We don't know. <laughs> Artie, don't you know what happens when a toe gets struck by lightning? <laughs> Listen, my uncle got struck by lightning. He's not dead. So he's got some heart problems, but he's not dead. So maybe that's the same thing that happens to everybody else. Mm -hmm. But he didn't show up in the sequel either. <laughs> no, no. Maybe first class. And then there's the fight at the end on the spire. We kind of talked about already. There's only one move I like, and that's when Sabretooth throws Wolverine and he uses the claws and does a 360 on the spire. Of course, having lived through the renovation of Statue of Liberty in the 80s, all I could think of is they're going to take 10 years fixing that. <laughs> Did you like the fact that they show their hands so brazenly here? I mean, you talk about broad strokes, and they've used several to craft this story in the time frame and budget they've been given. But here we're actually having a fight about what kind of America we want on top of the Statue of Liberty. Is that too much? Is that a little too far? I just thought it was a big set piece. I didn't even put that together, Stuart. I just thought, you know, in comic books, you always have to have these big over-the-top set pieces. And so I thought, yeah, why not the Statue of Liberty? I mean, the Ghostbusters made it come alive to defeat a ghost. Uh, why not have a big mutant fight there? No, but it's very important that this is happening. No, no. Alice, now that you point it out, it makes, it makes perfect sense. I'm with Jacob. I didn't get that before. I just thought, you know... They've used all of the good locations, and every movie tries to be original, and it's one of the landmarks I couldn't think of an action scene having because you'd have to take a boat to get there, so... No, but the, its symbolic value is welcoming strangers and outcasts to our shores. I mean, America is all about taking the outcast and making them feel a part of the one thing. And that's been the whole challenge by the senator this whole time. So now we're having the battle right here. I don't know. For me, it felt a little too much. It was a little on the nose. So the gas chamber holocaust was fine, but the Statue of Liberty fight, is that's too far. I didn't say it was fine. I think I said it was too far. You said it bordered on too far, and you said this was too far. I just want to check. 
Yeah, that's what I'm saying, that these are broad strokes that feel a little far. But again, Singer is working on something here. He is trying to take a superhero story and tell something that's going to reach a wider audience. He's not just telling a single adventure. He's here for the story. This is a story about bigotry, and he wants to make sure that everyone gets it. And it was lost on both Jacob and I, that it was at the Statue of Liberty. <laughs> oh, okay. So Singer failed. <laughs> I would have got the Holocaust tattoo, though. Yeah, I would have, too. (laughs) But I think that's what makes this movie relatable beyond the comic book world, is the fact that we can all recognize and identify with being outcast. And and I feel like that is the end for everyone that doesn't care about comic book characters with this movie, is that it's a story about outsiders and being accepted. And really, it's an American story. So I feel like it has resonance. And I'll just give it this thing that it's got to take place in our most symbolic icon of immigration and assimilation. And then the movie's kind of over real quick. I mean, a lot of things happen very rapidly. Rogue has been in the torch on the gyroscope, and all that she suffers from this is getting a gray streak in the head. Now, this is the third movie, Arnie, now. We've been dealing with gray streaks in the head. (laughs) Nancy and Nightmare, and then Joe Beth Williams and Poltergeist. Like, what is it with this? Well, I knew this because, again, I watched the cartoon. That's just something Rogue has. No, I get it. It's a cosmetic thing. Probably fanboys have been wondering, why doesn't she have it the whole movie? It's never been a thought in my head, but they've introduced it. They've given an origin to a detail from the comic. I guess that's fine. It's a nice little touch for them. But yeah, it is kind of a shorthand, I guess, for duress. Yes, So Rogue comes down with the gray streak, and we've been wondering, is she going to go with Wolverine? Is she going to go with Iceman? Were you really wondering that? I never got that as a love triangle. I kind of got that Rogue was crushing on Wolverine, but I never really took it as a love triangle so much as like a kind of a paternal thing. She's looking for a father figure. I've always thought she had romantic inclinations, and he saw it much more as a mentoring relationship. Kind of like the relationship between Leon and Natalie Portman in The Professional. I thought that was very sexual, so... On her side, it definitely was. On his, it's less clear. Yeah. It's an idea that's occurred to him, but at the end of the day, he knows that this is a PG-13 rated movie (laughs) and he is not going to do that. Oh, I was talking The Professional. I was talking about both. I don't think Wolverine ever thought of Rogue that way. Not once. I really don't. I think Wolverine is, for all his bad boy tendencies, he's not into pedophilia. You know, I just I never got that from him. He was a caregiver to Rogue, but I never thought he ever had that cross his mind. No, I think Rogue was into it, though, because he had the healing factor so he could deal with uh, her touching her. And not really. She almost killed him. And that was just with the touch on the face. But she does have the line where she says the boy that she had the first kiss with is still with her in her head and that Wolverine is too. She puts them on the same pedestal. She thinks of them in the same way. So you can't tell me that that isn't a romantic thought. I just thought those were the two people she almost killed with the touch and that, you know, she does. She absorbs their memories. She absorbs their personality traits. It's said after the Statue of Liberty that she had some of his personality traits for a few days. That's what I took it to mean is like she's haunted by them and not in like a lustful way. 
Well, I wish they would have shown her taking on some of Wolverine's personality traits. I love that line. I wish they gotten a scene with her just walking in with a cigar or saying something nasty to Cyclops. Could have been fun. But then the love triangle I did see the whole triangle of was Jean Grey. But I also, I never thought it would go any other way. I knew Jean and Cyclops would end up together. Jean kind of has a couple scenes where she's seems to be a little tentative, but I never really get the feeling that Wolverine's cracked that armor, so to speak. I agree. And more to the point, I don't necessarily want them to get together because I haven't really understood why Jean is this object of desire. I mean, obviously, Fam Key is a beautiful woman, but where's the personality? Where's the abilities? Where's the anything? She just, she has so little to do in this movie that she's just an object, really. You know, I want to give the actress credit because if you looked at the script, I had that same problem. And when I remembered this movie before watching it for this review, and this is my first time seeing this movie since theaters, I would like to add. Watching it for this review, I went in saying, this is unjustified. The characters sell it to me. Because you get from Hugh Jackman that he would be attracted to a strong woman. I think that's why I don't get that he'd be with Rogue. Rogue is too needy, too broken, too fragile. He wants a strong woman because he's a strong guy. And he wants a woman that he could kind of go a few rounds with. And in their interplay and the way that the characters play off each other in the scenes they have where, like, she's reading his mind, their glances, everything they have there, the actors give me, through their performances, something the script never does, which is a reason why these characters would be interested in each other. Okay, I'll go with that. Of course, I said the exact same thing about Howard the Duck and Beverly. (laughs) (laughs) I do like Mystique impersonating Senator Kelly and reversing his policies, too. I thought that was a nice touch for her and for his character. That's what he would have wanted had he lived, and she would, of course, been the one to do it. And in a way, doesn't it make Magneto right? I mean... Magneto's mutating Kelly stopped the Mutant Registration Act. Nothing Professor X did helped. It took a martyr, as it tends to do, but it didn't take everyone being turned into the other to make the point. And I think that's why, you know, earlier in this podcast, Stuart, you said that you didn't see Magneto as being evil. I think the fact that Magneto was willing to sacrifice all those people is what pushes him over the edge from just a militant opposition to evil, to being mass murderer. Perhaps. We will see in the next chapter. I like the way it ends. Like I said, I really felt like the crux of this movie was Patrick Stewart and Ian McKellen, and to end on their chess mats in this way, and to know that this is just the beginning of a long war that's going to brew. We know there's a sequel coming, and I want it. Well, I guess this leaves. Jacob Stewart, do you recommend X-Men? Yes, I do recommend X-Men, the film the movie. You know, the first time I saw this, I haven't seen this film for quite a while. I saw it in the theaters. I probably saw it once or twice after that on TV. I remember enjoying it. Not, you know, a whole lot, but I'm like, it's a decent film. Sitting down and really watching this time, I enjoyed this film a whole lot. You know, just looking at the historical context of the film, how we talked about Richard Donner's Superman and Tim Burton's Batman and what they did for superheroes and cinema. And X-Men, it really was that next step. It really changed the game and watching it again you know yeah the action scenes aren't that great but I liked all the other stuff going on you know this movie made me want to check out some more X-Men comics because it's one of those comics I had tried on and off I can never get into it because it's this big team I don't like a lot of characters I could barely handle reading a Batman comic when Robin's in there too I like 
let's focus on one character. So I really liked Wolverine. But after this film, you know, I heard that the, the X-Men comic was going to change to adapt some of those things. I've talked about that throughout this podcast. And it did. I mean, it really tied into like, let's make the X-Men this feared group again by humans. Let's change their outfits so that they're more updated. Well, you know, let's make the characters more sexy, you know, just like the actors. And there was a big long run after this film that I really enjoyed where I was really into X-Men comics. And it had a lot to do because they adapted the things that worked with this film. They adapted that in the comic and really ran with it. So is that where Emma Frost got her outfit as the sexy post-movie X-Men? She's always had that outfit since <laughs> her origins. Yes, she became a lot more sultry, I think, when uh, after this film came out. Again, there are those comic book elements, the big super magnet, which didn't really work for me. You know, went after, you know, those edgier things like the Holocaust. I like that. I like that it, it really went out there for its time. So, yeah, I recommend X-Men. Stewart. Well, this wasn't made for me, and I didn't go to the theaters, and I didn't want to see it. It was just not appealing. But when I did catch up with it on video, it did its job. I've already said I responded to the themes. I thought that it had a real American story to it, and that there were cool characters here amid the horrible haircuts and sometimes phony baloney costuming. I feel like... This allowed everyone to see that comic books weren't just for kids anymore. Sure, we had Batman. Sure, we had Superman. But for the most part, I think most people never wanted to touch superhero movies because they thought it was meant for kids. And here it's clearly meant for everyone. And it works. It brings me in. I don't think it's great, but it made me go see the sequel in theaters. And I think that's the best I could say about the movie is that it won me over. It made me a fan of something I didn't think I wanted or needed. So recommend. I wasn't sure going back. I mean, this is my first time seeing this movie in 11 years. I saw it in theaters. I saw it now. Not at all in between. I've seen X-Men 3 a lot more than this one. In fact, Stuart... If I can reveal this, you and I had a bit of a discussion long before we started this Marvel series about how you said you never want to do a X-Men retrospective with me because you didn't want to have a conversation where I'm telling you how X-Men 3 is better than X-Men 1. And I came into X-Men 1 watching it this time a little bit negative on it before I even pushed play because I'm like, I remember being so disappointed in this. But I think on a first watching, disappointment can really cloud my viewing into missing some good things. And there are a lot of good things about this movie. It's moody. It's atmospheric. The set design absolutely rocks, even if I do laugh at the X's. And the movie just has this cool feeling to it that I like. It just it has an aura of coolness. So in the end, I think there's a lot going for this movie, the performances, the characterization. And so I give it a solid recommend, but not an extreme recommend because I stand by what I said earlier. This movie's like coitus interruptus. You get the coitus, but you never get the climax you want. This movie's like a tease. There's so much good in it, but it's a superhero film. It's billed as a superhero film. It's sold as a superhero film, a comic book movie, and it lacks the action that you want. There's no Zod versus Clark. There's no Batman versus Joker in the church cathedral. There's no Hulk versus Abomination on the streets. It has an explosive ending, but the way it's filmed, the way it's staged, it feels less than spectacular. So it gets a solid recommend because it was an enjoyable watch. But man, if, if they just could have ramped up the action and done it, 
this could be one of my all-time favorite films, and as it is, it's just a good movie. Well, you know, Zod didn't come in until Superman 2, so maybe we should just wait and see how the next one goes. Very true. But for now, Stuart, Jacob, thank you again for joining me for X-Men 1. And a reminder to our listeners, while all of our Jaws podcasts have been released, you can get all five right now in a nice little digital box set. It is our thank you for donating $10 or more to Now Playing, which you can do by finding the donate button at the bottom of our homepage. And don't forget, we are doing one of my biggies, the whole Poltergeist trilogy. Poltergeist 1 is out now, guys. So you know whether you've donated enough or not. If you hit the magic mark, you're going to get Poltergeist, Poltergeist 2 the other side, and Poltergeist 3. You want them, you'll need them, you love them, donate. You donate yet, children? You should. I can't do Kane as well as you, but if they want to hear your Kane, they need to donate. Yeah, that's true. I do do some impersonations. Practically rich little of the Poltergeist series. (laughs) (laughs) At least I'm not the dwarf of the Poltergeist series. (laughs) Dwarf on ghosts. And while you're at our homepage at NowPlayingPodcast.com, you can download other retrospective series. You can hear our earlier Marvel Comics reviews, our Marvel Misfits, Howard the Duck, Kick-Ass, Man-Thing, as well as other movie series, such as the Philip K. Dick retrospective that was done earlier this year, Scream, which was just released in theaters, Rambo, Karate Kid, Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street, and so many more series, I cannot name them all. You can find them all in the archives at NowPlayingPodcast.com. And... While you're at our website, leave us a note and tell us what you think of Thor. I know it's out today. I don't know I'm going to go see it. So you guys tell me if I should see it now or wait till next year. I guess when we do it for our Avengers. All right, guys. Well, we will talk next time when we are here for X2, X-Men United. So we'll talk to you then. Today's attack was only our first salvo. Our war will rage. Your cities will not be safe. Your streets will not be safe. You will not be safe. And to my fellow mutants, I make you this offer. Join us or stay out of our way. Thank you for listening to the now playing X-Men movie retrospective series. We are the future, Charles, not them. They no longer matter. Part of our Marvel Comics movie series. Told you if you came down this road, you would like what you found. Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week as we review another X-Men film, leading up to the weekend of release review of this summer's X-Men First Class. The professor trusted you were smart enough to discover this on your own. He gives you more credit than I do. And in the NowPlayingPodcast.com archives, you can find reviews of other Marvel Comics films, such as Howard the Duck, Man-Thing, and Kick-Ass, as well as reviews of other series, such as Star Trek, Terminator, Predator, Philip K. Dick, Tron, and many more. And individual movie reviews, such as Avatar, Inception, and Scott Pilgrim vs. The World. This is also crazy sounding. You said the same thing about my other ideas four years ago, but everything I said I could do, I've done. And now you're a chitting millionaire. And while at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss the Marvel movie films with other listeners. Show's over. Show's never over for us. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where we post announcements of new episodes and where the hosts post movie mini-reviews. Me and my kind. 
the Brotherhood of Mutants. Links to our social media pages are found at nowplayingpodcast.com. Do you know what happens to a toad when it's struck by lightning? The same thing that happens to everything else. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. Do I look like a man who exaggerates? You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Don't you have any decency? Where's your sense of gratitude? Do you think I have needs? I think I'm just here to be your dream grid guru? I want out of here! I want to hit the big time! You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcasts by shopping in our store, where you can buy Now Playing t-shirts, coffee mugs, mouse pads, and much more. The link to our Cafe Press store is available on our homepage. The whole world's going to hell. You're just going to sit there? Let's go. Now Playing's X-Men retrospective series is edited by Alex, Carlos, and Arnie. They say you're the bad guy. Is that what they say? Now Playing is not affiliated with Marvel Enterprises or 20th Century Fox. The Marvel characters and all the Marvel Universe contains is the intellectual property and trademark of Marvel Publishing Incorporated, and no infringement is intended. Oh, you get the point! The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. Apparently we have some issues with authority. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2011, all rights reserved. Class dismissed. Did we just lose the feed? Are we still live? Stuart, you talked about with Generation X how you saw the X-Men as this version of the hippies. And I always... I thought we'd all agreed to forget Generation X. Well... We're, we're talking about the X-Men, though. He mentioned it during Generation <laughs> X, but we're talking about the X-Men. What's her claim to fame? <laughs> Are you joking? No, I'm blanking. Is she the piano? Yeah, she, yeah. Anna Beckwin and... Uh, okay. Are we, are we in the show or out of the I, show? I was out of the show for a moment because okay. I, I couldn't right. remember if she was the piano or if she was Embrace of the... Or, yeah, Interview with a Vampire. I get those two Embrace confused. of the Vampire. Whoa. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Damn it. Now I had... Now this is a blooper. It went from an out... From a, a side to a blooper. <laughs> I'll recognize her fingers anywhere. <laughs> Especially there. <laughs> Well, hey, she is bisexual in real life, so yeah. Yes, and and still messing around with vampires. <laughs> but it wasn't her in that movie. Yes. <laughs> Between this and True Blood, I have to ask, is Anna Paquin Southern? Because every time I see her, she's putting on this real thick Southern accent. Is is that legit? Um, You did see the piano, yes? Yes. Where was that set? I don't remember. It's been 20 years. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, oh, okay. I, th- I thought that was evident. It's new- no, she's from New Zealand. No, she's uh, she's a Kiwi. Oh, from from S- South New Zealand? Uh, <laughs> that was possibly. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, we had in Man Thing, we had Australians yes. doing the yeah. Southern accent. Now we have the New Zealanders doing the Southern accent. Yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, it's, it must be a popular role for people from that part of the world. <laughs> There's actually an extra feature on the DVD that stars Bruce Davidson. And I was just so happy. It was like 30 minutes of Senator Kelly, and it was great. I will never forgive him for Harry and the Hendersons, but for the most part, he's good. (laughs) He was in that? He was on the TV show. Oh, there's a TV show? (laughs) (laughs) Go look it up. Or better yet, don't. (laughs) Wait for our Harry and the Hendersons retrospective series. Brought sexiness. 
to the superhero genre. Arnie, you could correct me if I'm wrong, but was Marjorie ever into Marvel stuff until she saw Hugh Jackman as Wolverine? Because I know she's a huge Hugh Jackman fan. She is. And in fact, uh, for Valentine's Day, I got her a Hugh Jackman doll. <laughs> that, I mean, well, that's awfully big of you. <laughs> Not every husband would give uh, their wife a, a figurine of their of their paramour. All right. <laughs> no. I... Well, those were long. <laughs> yep. We we should stop saying. Oh yeah, we're, we're not going to be able to go over forty. Minutes. I agree. I agree. That's cursing us. Next. We are. We should say we're never able to go under. Yes. <laughs> I knew we, we were... it wouldn't matter. We could watch like Andy Warhol's sleep movie where it's just a one shot of a guy in his bed and we would turn that into an hour. And a half. <laughs> Artie, when you when you're uh, getting your drink, it, Stuart and I were discussing like, OK, let's just cover uh, Mystique and Toad. And like literally Toad was like going to be a two second thing. And then there's Toad. He's a frog. And we ended up going like 20 minutes about him. <laughs> no. And she went on to be very good in Ugly Betty as strangely a post-op transsexual. Quick aside, both Famke Jensen and Rebecca Romaine played post-op transsexuals on television. I'm just saying. Okay. <laughs> Getting some manly women in here for X-Men. But I want to see Debo as villains in an X-Men movie. I would pay good money. Danzig as Wolverine, Debo as the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. Let's make that happen. Well, if Roger Corman had still owned the rights, that's probably what we would have gotten. <laughs> I know, but I'm just saying. I would have got the you. Holocaust tattoo, though. Yeah, I would have, too. <laughs> Thanks to Scary German Guy in Monster Squad. <laughs> I, I don't know what that means. You don't want to see it. It's not good. I think I'm going to make a drinking game out of every time Stuart says I don't know what that means. <laughs> yeah, you will be drunk very quickly. Here, though, it's a reverse. They create the duress to give her the streak rather than giving her the streak to show the duress. So it's kind of a flip on the Nancy. Wow. Sounds like a college paper in the works. <laughs> Grads, get, your, get your grad school application ready. Oh, God. I, 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 yeah, I didn't do any superheroes in undergrad. So I guess grad school, superhero 101. Can I get a degree in spandex? Uh, at Xavier College, you can. Artie, there is no backstory for the streak. There has never been an explanation. Okay. Well, it's cool. There you go. It's <laughs> it's punk. You know, wasn't she created in the early 80s when, like, the Australian punk wave was coming and the beds were burning and oi. <laughs> I, I don't know how big the punk scene was down in uh, Mississippi. <laughs> and what does the punk scene have to do with oi? I, I bet the Australian kind of like the, uh, you know, it, it's a punk, but it's also like that. Mad Max Thunderdome look. Oh, okay. I think a punk is very being New York, but okay. In London. Well, well you need to watch your Australian exploitation films then. <laughs> I guess so. Because they are very punk. Mm. Boy, that, I just remember when, Jocko. when they all sold out and the Australian guy was trying to sell me Energizer batteries. Yeah, Jacko. Uh, is that who that was? Yeah. <laughs> 
that I read about in the novelization of the X-Men film that you can hear my review of at Books and Nachos. Oh, my God. All right. Uh, I guess the... that's what Books and Nachos has become. Now, I did Jaws the Revenge. You're doing X-Men. We'll just read books based on screenplays of movies we're already covering. <laughs> Most useless podcast ever. Oh my god. <laughs> Is that the dog barking or are you Somebody laughing? throw him a fish. <laughs> Will you put a ball on your nose now? <laughs> wow. Get him a paper bag to breathe in you. <laughs> I know. Thump. Hello, Arnie? <laughs> Oh, <sighs>